Sorry. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour open-line talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. To express your viewpoint, please call 804-754-1988. That's 804-754-1988. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. This is Viewpoint with... asked him, Master, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And undoubtedly you remember what he said. The very first thing that he said was, take heed that no man deceive you. Now deception is a very interesting thing because nobody ever really believes that they're deceived. In fact, most people don't believe that they can be deceived, especially Christians. Don't believe they can be deceived, and yet The warnings of Scripture concerning deception are to believers because unbelievers are deceived already. In fact, Jesus said they were condemned already. Their only hope is to receive the good news of the gospel and be converted. Well, the reality is that when we consider the matter of deception, we have to understand that eternal destiny is at stake. If eternal destiny is not at stake, Jesus would not have been so sober in his warning concerning deception. In fact, three times in his Olivet Discourse, in Matthew chapter 24, he repeated, in fact, upped the warning concerning deception. One of those warnings was this. Many will come in my name and deceive many. Not deceive a few, and not there would be few coming in his name that would deceive, but many will come in my name and deceive many. How is that possible? Are you, have you considered the possibility that you could be deceived? And if you have not considered that, have you been deceived already? And what if you have considered it and concluded that there's no possibility that you could be deceived? Have you already been deceived because you have concluded that notwithstanding the warnings of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, that you just don't fit the mold and you can't be deceived? Interesting, isn't it? Now, the purpose in our conversation here today is not to try to upset your apple cart and try to make you fearful about being deceived. It's not about being fearful in that sense. It's about being sober-minded. It's about being serious-minded and not prideful in our spiritual, shall we say, uh, the womb of our spirituality in our own minds. Because if we cannot be deceived, that renders all the warnings of Scripture meaningless, moot. So when Jesus said, take heed that no man deceive you, The day before his crucifixion, his words were, you might say, chilling. They cast a frame around life and eternity. And in the final moments of his own life on earth, Jesus chose to leave the disciples, not the pagans, the disciples with whom he invested his life and ministry, a penetrating and haunting warning 
that they would never forget. And that warning echoes through the centuries to all of his disciples preparing for the end of the age. Regardless of what you want to call it, the end times, the end of the age, the last days, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. We are now in what I believe is the latter days of the last days, and beyond that is a short period of time called the day of the Lord, in which the judgment of the Lord, the righteous judgment of the Lord, becomes poured out on the children of disobedience. Today, we begin a what may be a three-part series dealing with this matter of deception and particular aspects of deception. Seducing spirits and doctrines. Seducing spirits and doctrines. Because there are many, many ways to be deceived. Oh, we can take a look at so many different things in the Word, the way we look at things in the Bible, the way we look at life, the way we form opinions and so on. And that's why we say regularly on this program that viewpoint determines destiny. And indeed it does. No viewpoints are neutral. If our viewpoints concerning the Bible, if our viewpoints concerning what we hear from the pulpits of America or anywhere else, quite frankly, if they were neutral, then the warnings would be unnecessary, wouldn't they? So we have to remember that eternal destiny is at stake. So any discussion of spiritual deception demands a level of soberness of mind and heart that well, is seldom sought and even less seldom taught in our churches today in which men and women are intent on seeking their best life now rather than preparing mind and heart for the soon return of Christ. And isn't it interesting that the beloved disciple John said, whoever has this hope in him of the coming of the Lord will purify himself even as Christ is pure. Jesus was not deceived, but Satan tried to deceive him. That's what a lot of that temptation there after his baptism was about. And Jesus resisted that by quoting the word of God, standing on the word of God, and not compromising as had the first Adam when Satan came to him and to Eve and said, Hath God said, and they responded, Yes, but. Isn't that what we're tempted to do today? Always respond, yes, but. So what we do is superimpose our own viewpoint, our own thinking, our own will, our own ways, our own imaginations on top of what God has said and form our own theology, our own viewpoint. Well, deception is dangerous. I think you know that. We don't have to reinforce that. But When we say it's dangerous, it's dangerous because of the eternal consequences. So we need to approach this very sober-mindedly. The Apostle Peter talked about that continually. Be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. He wasn't talking about not being inebriated. He was talking about being serious-minded. Not being cavalier about our faith. So as Jesus' ministry was now complete, and he knew and was foretold by the prophets that death and resurrection would be his crowning glory, his culminating mission, he sat there with his disciples and devoted precious hours with them, telling them 
about what was coming as the end times approached. In fact, uh, if you go back to the prophet Joel, the day of the Lord cometh, for it is near at hand. Joel then prophetically inquired, the day of the Lord is great, very terrible. Who can abide it? Amos joined the prophetic choir, crying, prepare to meet thy God. But it was Malachi, the prophet of transition, 400 years before Christ came, awaiting the first coming of the promised Messiah, who served as God's final prophetic Old Covenant voice. We're going to take a look at what he said before we look at Jesus' warning and then get into a discussion concerning seducing spirits and doctrines. I hope you'll stay tuned, friends. This is Viewpoint. And as we say always, Viewpoint determines destiny. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. The revered leaders of Israel were deceived. Oh, were they ever deceived. But they didn't think so. They thought that they were the greatest thing since sliced bread. They were the spiritual leaders of Israel, revered by the people. They were the head honchos. They were the carriers of the glory of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you don't mess with us. But the prophet Malachi did. It was Malachi, the prophet of transition, 400 years before Christ, who God spoke to and through. He lamented the spiritual corruption of the covenant people. He warned of their selective obedience to God's word and ways. Notice selective obedience. In other words, they would obey on some things and not in others. In other words, they were deceived, self-deceived, because they chose to obey in some things and not in others. He excoriated their treacherous divorce practices, which they had justified. So they were deceived with regard to putting their blessings on divorce. They were deceived with regard to their gross self-centeredness and greed for personal gain. On the near edge of the first coming a Messiah, the anointed one. Now, you find all of that in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 3. Chapter 3, you might go back and read it. It's unbelievable. God says, you call me father? You've got to be kidding me. Malachi went on to say, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, he was directing this to the leaders of Israel, the spiritual leaders They had been entrusted with the Torah, with the Tanakh. They had been entrusted with the word of God, and yet they had wearied the Lord with their words. Notice, if they had wearied the Lord with their words, that means that they were saying things 
that were inconsistent with God's word, will, and ways, yet thinking that they were doing the right thing. In other words, they were deceived. So God said through Malachi, in spite of your tears, God regards not the offering anymore, nor receives it with goodwill at your hand. I'm not going to receive your crying, your weeping, all of your offerings. I'm not going to receive them anymore because you're not truly sincere. Oh, you were sincere in that you thought you were sincere, but you weren't sincere because you dissed my word. You disagreed with my word, in whole or in part. So Malachi says, take heed to your spirit. Then came the wooing words from God himself. Here it is. Return unto me, and I will return unto you. Notice, God is not chasing you down. That's a false teaching. That is a false teaching, friends, and yet it is most common today in our evangelical communities across the country. You hear it everywhere. God's chasing you down because he loves you so much, and he wouldn't dare cut you off because you're so cool and so wonderful. But the Bible doesn't say that at all. It says just the opposite. Just the opposite. So God is saying to the religious leaders of the day, take heed to your spirit. Return unto me, and I will return unto you. We have a little sign in our family room where people gather uh, weekly for worship, and it says, if you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? God didn't move. You did. You moved. How do we do that? How do we move? Well, we move incrementally. We move by allowing ourselves to be deceived in various ways that draws us away from seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But wooing wasn't enough. They were deceived. While claiming to be the sons of Abraham by faith and lineage, according to God's promise, they, like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were living as if you are of your father the devil, who from the beginning did not abide in the truth. They were like us right now, needing a grave warning to shake us from the deception that has enveloped our words and our ways. Now, Malachi concludes by saying, The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, and he shall purify. Do you know that Jesus said, I came not to bring peace on the earth, but to bring fire on the earth? Did you know that? Right there in the New Testament. It's not that Jesus wouldn't be the Prince of Peace, but he knew that if we would truly have peace, we would have to be purified seriously purified. So God, in his mercy, in his mercy, brings a message to us of wooing and of warning, 
to prepare the way of the Lord in our lives, just as he sent John the Baptist before the first coming of Christ, saying, make straight paths for your feet. He is doing exactly the same thing today. So when the disciples asked, what shall be the sign of your coming and at the end of the world to Jesus, the very first thing he said is, take heed that no man deceive you. And he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. So, here's a question. Will deception determine your destiny? Will deceptive teachings, cultural mandates, political promises, demonic devices, fear of man, lusts of the flesh, religious systems, pursuit of world peace, and a host of other end-time events, Practices and purposes deprive you or me of our eternal destiny with Jesus Christ. And the answer to the question is itself deceptively difficult. If we simply deny the possibility, I think, of our own deception, believing it could only happen to others and to unbelievers or disbelievers, we may very well have confirmed that we're already operating in the most dangerous of all deceptions, the prideful conviction that you or I cannot be deceived. And since all the warnings of the massive and unprecedented deception that will be characteristic of this end of the age, ushering in Christ's second coming, were made to believers in Christ, shouldn't we appropriately be concerned that both Jesus and his apostles who warn us had an understanding and a viewpoint of the end times that differs from that of so-called modern disciples here on the near edge of the Christ's return? Can saints be seduced? Can believers in Christ become so deceived that they will deprive themselves of true saving faith? Don't answer too quickly with blithe theological mantras. Because eternal destiny is on the line, friends. It's on the line. Now, we take a look then at seducing spirits and doctrines. Paul warned Timothy, his ministry sidekick, saying, In the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines doctrines. Now, what people was he talking about? Timothy was the pastor of the church. He was warning Timothy of the people that would come around him who were walking with the saints purportedly in faith would, for one reason or another, depart from the faith, in other words, depart from their born-again position, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines. That's what he was saying. So it was those who professed to be saints who were being warned. Because a person, think about this, a person cannot depart from a place or position in which he or he... he, he uh, or she has never been. And remember, 
It was the Apostle Paul who also warned the saints in Second Thessalonians. He said that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled in spirit as the day of Christ is at hand. The day of Christ is called, is a reference to the final stage of world history. Not the last days, not the latter days, but moving very close to what is called the day of the Lord. He said, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. So as we look at this matter of spiritual, uh, seducing spirits and doctrines, we have to look at what it is that would cause people to fall away. People who were born again, who were walking with the Lord, seemingly in the light of his word, and then they gradually fall away. So we're going to focus on some of the more common aspects of doctrinal deception and spiritual deception and seduction, ranging from, well, actually classic cults to challenges within our own churches. And the problem in dealing with this, friends, is that depending upon your historical background and your current exposure with the broader Christian community, some aspects of what we talk about may prove challenging to preconceived notions or to theological positions you may deem sacrosanct. So I I want to urge you to try to avoid knee-jerk defensiveness that can frustrate the very purpose of the point we're trying to make. And it allows us, when we do that, it allows us to elevate tradition over truth, heritage over holiness, and thus open the door to unsuspected seduction that we don't even consider seduction. So, in this series, we're going to take a look at false teaching, false prophets, and false hope. False teaching, false prophets, and false hope. Some people would say that anybody who says anything different than what you have commonly heard is a false teacher or a false prophet. But is that true? No. Because what you have commonly heard may itself be false, may be partly true and partly false. We have to be very, very careful when we consider whether or not we are truly willing to hear the fullness of the truth of God's word and to follow it. So, we launch into false teachers, and uh, I hope that uh, you will continue to stay tuned today in the second half of the program because I think it's going to reveal a lot uh, to many people help us to understand, and uh, I also want to make available to you my book, Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. 
This is critical. Some have said they felt that this was the most important book they had read other than the Bible. And so I asked why. And their answer was, because it applies the truth. It doesn't just talk in blithe theological constructive uh, sentences, but actually applies the truth so we can get a hold of it. Isn't that what we really want to have have happen? It's an $18 book, yours, for $15 on our website. Might be a great gift, by the way. $15 on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. Or you can write to us at Save America Ministries, the O Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Or you can call us at 1-800-SAVE-USA. 1-800-SAVE-USA. And how would you identify a false preacher, a teacher? And why are people prone to believe false teaching anyway? We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, on the front page are two great videos. First, an interview and discussion of Chuck's book, Out of Egypt. Also, a great TV interview with Chuck regarding his book, Seduction of the Saints. Much more videos, a For Pastors Only section, and also you can view Chuck's weekly teachings. All at his website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. Also on Chuck's website, listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast. Listen to the archives. Maybe you missed a program. Check it out at saveus.org. Also, there are some great resources, hospitality information, also information about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, newsletters, articles, prophecy, prayer and revival information, all at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chrismeyer. Today we begin a three or four part series concerning uh, the matter of deception and seduction, particularly as it relates to false doctrines and uh, seductive spirits and so on. So uh, today we talk about false teachers in the second half of the program here today. And again, I'm so glad that you've joined us. According to the prophet, excuse me, the apostle Peter, he said, there shall be false teachers among you, and many will follow their pernicious ways. The word pernicious means deadly. Pernicious anemia means deadly. There shall be false teachers among you. He's talking to believers. And many, not a few, many will follow their pernicious or deadly ways. In other words, false teaching can lead to false beliefs and dissing what God has said in whole or in part that could be very dangerous related to our eternal destiny. Don't you think this would be an important thing for our families to discuss? Don't you think it would be important for us to truly discuss these things within our congregations and so on, within our Sunday school classes, if you're in one, in small groups. Well, this book is actually designed to be used that way because every single chapter is followed by daring thoughts for deceptive times. In other words, questions. Questions that are designed to 
probe more deeply. They're not like the idle questions that you read in the back of most books uh, in, in their chapters. These are substantive questions that probe deeply into our minds and hearts. Is it possible to teach from the Bible and still be a false teacher? And why are people prone to believe false teaching? Good question. Let me give a single response to that. No one is ever seduced against their will. No one. No one is ever deceived against their will. In other words, there's something in us, in our minds, in our hearts, in our fleshly makeup that wills or is willing to be deceived or seduced. That's why this is so dangerous, friends. Because if you want to know where the battle of the flesh against the spirit is, where spiritual warfare really is, it's the battle of the flesh against the spirit. Even the Apostle Paul talked about his great battle. The battle of the flesh against the spirit. He had to struggle with that. And if the Apostle Paul had to struggle with that, as we find in Romans chapter 7, then why do you think we should not struggle with it? Jesus himself struggled with it. We find two classic places that he struggled with it. First was at in the temptation in the wilderness following his baptism. And finally, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, where his flesh, his his bodily flesh and mind cried out, God, Father, if it be possible, deliver me from this mission you've called me to. But he had to resolve it in the spirit. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. These are two classic places where Jesus himself had to deal with this challenge that you and I have to deal with. So we're not alone. That's why the scripture says that we do not have a high priest who cannot be, who was not touched with the spirit of our own infirmities. Therefore, we can trust him. Now, <clears throat> the apostle Peter wrote these words. There shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. Have you not seen that, friends, in the last 50 to 60 years in our nation? where spiritual leaders, trusted spiritual leaders, make merchandise of the people. How about one of the most trusted spiritual leaders in the country today who was caught a few years ago with ministry funds buying up I think it was like 25,000 copies of his new book. 
from all different sources. You know what the purpose was? The purpose was to get his name and his book on the New York Times bestseller list. I'm not going to mention his name. You would be shocked. And he's not alone. That became a habit, a pattern that was being marketed to pastors, prominent pastors and parachurch leaders across the country, making merchandise of the people. I'm having a hard time holding back the tears right now because I see how God's people are so easily manipulated and thinking that they're listening to absolute truth. Why do people believe a falsehood? Well, the Bible says that the vast majority of people on this planet are going to believe a lie. The Apostle Paul said that in Second Thessalonians. Few there be that will walk the narrow way, Jesus said, the straight way that leads to life. The majority of people will not. And understanding why that is, is our first defense against false teaching. So, here it is. It's pretty simple, and we're going to expand on it. The simple warning words of the Apostle Paul, people will be seduced and are being seduced by false teaching and false prophecy for either or both of the following basic reasons. First of all, they love not the truth, not really, and they have pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, their underlying heart condition is such that there is either a latent desire or active will to be deceived. And if that weren't true, they would be lovers of the truth and take pleasure in righteousness. So, at this point, where do you, yes, you, I I can't see your eyes, so I'm not shooting because I don't see the whites in your eyes. We're all in this together. Even as I speak, the arrow comes back to me as well. Where do you, where do I honestly fit as the Holy Spirit searches your heart and mine? Do you honestly consider yourself a lover of truth? I mean, really a lover of truth? Not theoretically, but in reality? Do you embrace the truth? That is the whole truth? Even if it hurts? Do you take pleasure in unrighteousness? That is God's standard? That is, Or do you dance with the deteriorating, continually redefined cultural standards that are rooted in compromise? We could talk a whole hour on these two items, lover of the truth and taking pleasure in righteousness. If you go back to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6.33, he said this, but in spite of all the other things that I've taught you here in the Beatitudes, but seek ye first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness. One of the great deceptions in the church today is when pastors and parachurch leaders or others will quote that passage and only quote the first half. Seek first the kingdom of God. You can justify all kinds of things in your mind when you think about seeking first the kingdom of God because it's so ill-defined. What does that mean? But he didn't stop there. He said, and his righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is right living from God's viewpoint, not man's viewpoint, not your denomination's viewpoint, not the radio and television broadcaster's viewpoint, but what God says, not just the little bits and pieces that you want to look for and try to find to justify what you want to do. That's dishonesty. There's no integrity in that. The prophet, the, the psalmist David cried out to the Lord. He says, judge me according to my integrity. Search me, Lord. Search my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. Strong delusion, Paul said, was going to characterize those seduced into deception. Delusion is a false belief or opinion, strongly held in spite of invalidating evidence. We see all that happening with regard to COVID. And all the claims that are being made by so-called experts... conveying strong opinions to others who are listening to them as if they're experts, but the evidence does not validate what they're saying. Yet you believe it anyway. Why are such false beliefs strongly held in spite of biblical evidence to the contrary? We're going to take a look at some biblical reasons why that might be. Please stay tuned, friends. We're talking about seducing spirits and doctrines, particularly false teaching and how to identify it. We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. In this segment of the program, we're going to begin to identify some uh, features of falsehood 
And uh, I'm glad, again, that you have joined us as we look at Seducing Spirits and Doctrines and begin at least a three-part series. Uh, When I say series, it's not going to be day after day. Uh, It'll be like one time a week for several weeks. And uh, that way, uh, we won't over uh, overindulge your mind with something that is so serious and confronted, but give you an opportunity, give us all an opportunity to dwell on it, to pause, to think, to allow the Holy Spirit to probe our own minds and our hearts. Patiently, that is. All right. We want to take a look at this strong delusion that the Apostle Paul said is going to come upon people who do not love the truth and take pleasure in unrighteousness. Remember, he's talking talking to believers, the church at Thessalonica. Delusion is a false belief or opinion that is strongly held in spite of the invalidating evidence. But people are willing to buy into it. Why are such false beliefs strongly held by us in spite of biblical evidence to the contrary. Here are some reasons. First, as we've already said, we don't really love the truth. Not really. We love the things about the truth that we love, but we don't love the whole truth. If we really loved the whole truth, we wouldn't do some of the things that we do. We prefer unrighteousness in some areas. How do we know that? If that weren't the case, we wouldn't have a divorce rate in this country for the past 50, 60 years at the level that it's been. Neither would we have had a divorce rate in the Bible Belt of America for the past 25 or 30 years that has been double that or 50% higher than that of the nation as a whole, would we? No, we justified it. We found a way to justify divorce because we wanted to do it. Our flesh wanted to do it. And then we found even more ways, and our spiritual leaders found more ways, to even market divorce to us as justifiable by telling us, oh yes, and by the way, God loves you so much that you can turn around and remarry, even though Jesus said it would cause you and the other party to commit adultery. There is no more classic example of this than the illustrations I'm giving you right now. But they're not the only ones. Another, we have only a form of godliness. Not true godliness, but just a form of godliness. Church-going godliness. Going to Bible study godliness. You can go to Bible studies every day of the week and still be deceived. You know why? Because we may not love the whole truth. We may prefer unrighteousness. Maybe we prefer wonders or miracles over the word itself. Maybe we actually love unrighteousness in some instances. 
Maybe we're easily led due to fleshly desires, such as, say, pornography. If we have 70-plus percent of professing Christian men claiming to be born again, lovers of God who are involved in pornography and have been, do you not see how our flesh leads us to be deceived? When engaging in pornography, whether you're a man or a woman, is, from Jesus' viewpoint, adultery. That's what he said right there in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in his heart. The same would be true for women. 34% of Christian women admit to being involved in pornography, women's pornography, that is. like many of the so-called romance novels that are just full of pornographic images. Not visual images, but mental images. Some actually reject the transforming truth. We seek information, but resist transformation we don't aren't willing to endure sound doctrine but seek out teachers who will tell us what we want to hear it's called the itching ear syndrome don't go to the doctor and try to have him resolve it because it's only resolved spiritually <laughs> And also, Paul says, they turn their ears from the truth, preferring falsity and even fables presented by seducers who wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, just like their hearers. Wow. Okay. The Holy Spirit is fully capable, by the way, of applying this word and these applications of the word uh, in your own life. I dare say that for many who are listening right now, the Holy Spirit is quickening your own mind and heart, convicting, revealing, and then you're going to have to deal with those things. That's a good thing. We want conviction. That way, we're giving notice, the Holy Spirit is giving due process notice to us to correct, to make a course correction. And so we confess the error of our way, our sin, that so easily corrupts us, and then we repent. We turn from it, and that's where the grace of God comes in, not so much in the forgiveness part of it, that's his mercy, his grace is his enabling power to enable us to overcome and be victorious in living a life of righteousness and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. We even confuse the language and deceive ourselves that way, don't we? Well, here are some things that uh, you might want to consider in identifying uh, features of uh, falsehood 
First of all, false teachers uh, have oftentimes a false character. Their character is not Christ-like. There's something about their attitude or their actions that is inconsistent with their message. Some may have a false calling. Some pastors and parachurch leaders and so on get into ministry for false per- for uh, ulterior motives. And so they ended up pandering to the people, refusing to teach or preach the hard and heart-convincing truths of the Bible. They become a hireling. Some will present a false character of God. They'll distort the character of God. For instance, the classic is God is love. Of course God is love, but he's also the God of judgment. Or God is compassionate and merciful. Absolutely he is. And for that we're eternally grateful, right? But he's also the God of truth and righteousness. And he's going to judge the world in righteousness. Does God desire that we be blessed and happy? Sure. Yet he commands that we be holy first. And without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Do you see? We get things we misinterpret, overemphasize certain aspects of the character of God in order to market him and therefore we deceive ourselves and deceive our hearers. Another has to do with the false Christ, mischaracterizing Jesus. How is that done? Very easily. Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. So how do we mischaracterize Jesus? The majority of Christian pastors today don't like the Old Testament. Why? because they think that the Old Testament shows God as a mean ogre. But Jesus is gentle, Jesus sweet and mild. They keep him still as a babe in the manger. He's not there to judge the world in righteousness, and so they mischaracterize Christ himself. Yet Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Why don't we believe that? You know why? Because we don't want to believe it. And these false Christs and false prophets come in the name of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever subtly redefined or recast Jesus to suit the fancy of your feelings? Have you attempted to market Jesus to others to win them to Christ? Have you set yourself up as well as those you love and serve to easily embrace false Christs and the person and message of false prophets because it was easy to believe or made them feel good? Growing numbers of your congregation? Another thing, false controversies. Setting up false controversy in the church. Jeremiah warned that the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He wasn't the only one that warned about the controversy with the nations. A false Focused contrary seduces the heart of the possessing saints into a false sense of security, vehemently claiming that God is among us when, in fact, he's withdrawn himself from us. It's professing believers that backslide, and when they persist and are bent in their backsliding, God's going to give sway to their self-deceived wills. 
In his mercy, he woos and warns. But they fall away because of their iniquity. Have we, have you, have your congregation presumed that God's warnings were, were for them rather than for you or for us? If so, deception lies at the door. Maybe is even taken up in your residence. We've actually paganized. We, we've paganized Christianity itself among God's people. False content. False teaching by its very nature contains false content. False content is either unbiblical or unbalanced. Either unbiblical or unbalanced. Unbiblical teaching is much easier to identify than unbalanced teaching. So what do we mean by unbalanced? Well, unbiblical means teaching something that's contrary to or inconsistent with the very foundations of the Christian faith. We probably would call that heresy. But unbalanced means teaching that may find we might find support for in certain passages of Scripture, but which is presented in such a way as to ignore other equally important and counterbalancing passages. And by doing that, it leads to deceptive theology that seduces the saints into what in actuality are unbiblical beliefs and false trusts. Hmm. Well, there is much more that we could say here today. That's going to conclude our conversation concerning the matter of false teachers under the banner of seducing spirits and doctrines. The next time, we'll take a look at false prophets, and I'm glad that you've joined us. I hope you'll get a copy of the book, Seduction of the Saints, Staying Pure in a World of Deception. This book is not just about that. This book is primarily about many other things than that, including those things that we're talking about today. I think you'll find it helpful. $15, we'll put the $18 book in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. Give us a call, 1-800-SAVE-YOU-SAY, and consider becoming a partner with us. What a great time it would be to give unto the Lord. God bless and be a blessing. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.